0: Hello, and welcome to the Book Bad Podcast, where we help you navigate and explore the world of Christian fantasy books. I'm your co host, Jason.
1: And I'm your other co-host. co host. Why do I have trouble with that word? Co host, Carlissa J. <laughs> and we have writing updates.
0: You have a writing update. Mine's a, a blurb.
1: Yeah, my writing update is my editor got back to me for the first draft of Davy Jones Aquarium. The major changes is I'm going to write some more scenes.
0: (laughs) Well, that's normal for you, Carla. Mm -hmm. Some people go on too much. You don't go on enough. (laughs) That's kind of the norm for you.
1: Yeah. So that book is progressing. I don't have a time frame right now about when I'm going to be done the first round of edits. but
0: Well, I'm guessing your editor would prefer it to be done sooner rather than later. Yeah, maybe. you know, probably done the first round of edits safely before the end of the year.
1: Hopefully. So, what's your writing blurb?
0: You are bullying me into writing.
1: That's his writing blurb. Yes.
0: (laughs) I'm being bullied into this.
1: So, this is our third episode in our Mature Content series. Feel free to go back and listen to previous episodes if you haven't yet to get an idea of what we're discussing and why. Last episode, we mused over the relationship between Christian fantasy and mature content. For this episode... We're going to ask the question, what would it look like for Christian fantasy to tackle more difficult topics and scenarios? As a warning, there are going to be a few spoilers from my book series, Tales of the Diversity. So if you'd like to read that before hearing any in-depth discussion, you better get on that now.
0: Yeah, because I can't tell you when the spoilers are going to start or end. So this is your notice. Pause, read all three books, and then get back to this. I've noticed that Christian fantasy tends to follow a few norms. So one is the medieval type, which Carlissa absolutely despises.
1: I don't absolutely despise it. I just think... It's grossly overused. Uncreative, yeah. It's overused. Yeah, overused.
0: So that's like, you know, your knights in shining armor, swords, dragons, probably damsels in distress, maybe locked in a tower, (laughs) that sort of thing. Uh, Another norm is actually, and this one's a little more loose, is copying whatever is popular at the time of release. So as mentioned in, I think it was the last podcast, I mentioned that Wayne Thomas Batson released the Door Within series and then his two pirate-themed novels, Isle of Swords and Isle of Fire. They came out uh, suspiciously shortly after the release of the Lord of the Rings movies and the Pirates of the Caribbean movies.
1: And there was a rash of dragon-themed Christian fantasy after How to Train Your Dragon got released.
0: Yep, that is true. And
1: As in the DreamWorks movie.
0: Yeah, and I know, especially over the past handful of years, I wonder if this has to do with because when COVID hit all of a sudden Christian families were scrambling for some new books to read or whatever. But the Wing Feather saga seemed to have really get a second wind or whatever in the last couple of years so all of a sudden like i know andrew peterson and i think the lead animator's name is chris wall or something like that they had been working on something for the wing feather saga like turning into an animated series for before covid hit but i i found it more than a tad suspicious that after covid hit all of a sudden angel studios picks up the wing feather saga and is you know pushing it as their big family friendly animated series. Uh, another one which, I don't know, maybe the Wingfeather Saga would somewhat fit into this would be the hero's journey type story.
1: That is kind of vague though.
0: The hero's journey type or
1: Yeah. Hmm. What you define as. It's more of a style of storytelling than anything else.
0: I guess like if you want to get down to it like, you know, what 95% of all superhero comics are some version of the superhero of the hero's journey especially their origin story. (laughs) And the other thing I noticed as a norm was that they are almost exclusively aimed at tweens and teens. Like, so long and short of it, if you are older than 20, you've aged out of the demographic. What that means for us who are still younger people at heart, I don't know, maybe we're just left to drift. While there may not be anything inherently wrong with these norms, per se, it quickly makes Christian fantasy seem like it's aimed only at a very specific spectrum. At least in my opinion, it does. One thing I found as a teenager, and even beyond that into adulthood, is a pressing reality of big questions and emotions. Now, I lean into the emotional side of things, normally speaking. One thing that I found was that Christian fantasy doesn't really scratch that edge by acknowledging the reality of big emotions and what they make us feel and how they can change our perception on reality or big questions and how sometimes, you know, we had these big questions and there is no clean cut answer. One thing that I constantly turned to to help me with that sort of thing was music. My favorite band, a Crutch and two other musicians that yeah have been go-tos of mine for the better part of two decades now. Man, I'm old. Uh, Peter Furler and Phil Joel. And those artists have helped me grapple with and even accept big questions and accept emotions by acknowledging that they are real. And to the songs and the way they address, you know, big feelings or questions is, it doesn't always tend to be offering a black and white answer and telling you, okay, this is how you deal with them actually took me up until more recently to actually come to grips with the fact that it is in fact okay not to have all the answers to all the questions in all the world (laughs) and a good summation of this in my mind at least can be found in the final book of tales of the diversity trilogy which carlissa wrote you should read it if you haven't read it read it if you have read it read it again it's that good (laughs) the Tales of the Diversity trilogy is full of messy situations where things aren't always wrapped up in a nice and tidy happy endings. It is revealed, and I believe all this happens in the third book, that Jer has been long struggling with some form of mental illness. We don't know what it is exactly, and it's never fully specified. We find out that this illness has Long predated him becoming a Black Blood. Katia is reunited with her once husband, who now has amnesia, who now goes by Seberus. Is that right? Yep. The reader also witnesses Captain Sitso's broken relationship with his wife and daughter. There are hints of hope in the endings, but none of these situations are completely resolved in the way that I feel most Christian fantasy novels feel they have to, frankly. Another would be the way that the villain, Grey Noon, is defeated. If this was a typical Christian fantasy, some hero, probably Ian, if Carlissa had it her way, would have defeated him in some sort of dramatic finish, good triumphing over evil type thing. But what happens instead? Grey Noon wins. He gets everything that he set himself to accomplish, but he feels like nothing has changed from his traumatic childhood, that he's just spinning his wheels. So... In the end, he just commits suicide while drowning in a pit of hopelessness as conqueror of the world's top power. Just to be clear, this I'm not saying that Tales of the Diversity is a template of how all Christian novels should go. I don't believe that stereotypes or norms as we've created them are inherently bad, but I do believe that we should push our stories to be more than simple a hero's journey in a medieval setting with a Christian coat of paint for the morals and such. Maybe they can wrestle with big feelings and questions and not feel the overwhelming pressure to provide nice and clean-cut answers.
1: I think what the greatest fantasy authors have done that we've lost track of, and we've talked about this a little bit on the podcast before, is they believed they were continuing or carrying forward or bringing to attention conversations and stories from the distant past. C.S. Lewis makes multiple references to Dante and the Divine Comedy in his works, especially *The Great Divorce*. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fair enough.
1: J.R.R. Tolkien was, in many ways, reflecting on and building on Norse mythology and other mythologies. Yeah, we get interwoven, interwoven into those classic Christian fantasy books. Yeah, and it feels like, I guess, a lot of our modern fantasy, and and it kind of makes sense. We're in a time period where it feels like everything is constantly changing and people are constantly wondering what's going to happen next, what's going to change next, uh, feeling unanchored, I guess. And I think that's reflected in our storytelling is often more reflective of modern conversations or modern stories. Not that we don't take inspiration from stories from before our time but it tends to be more shortly before our time kind of thing
0: our version of before our time what tends to be oh you know that long ago year of
1: 1990 (laughs) or like the 1950s or something like that
0: whereas yeah i'm guessing with tolkien and lewis when they said long time ago they were Mm -hmm. talking like two three hundred plus years
1: yeah. Lewis was a medieval scholar who studied the time period. Okay. I know he started a lot of his research around the year five hundred, I wanna say, and then Oh wow, up so into, we're talking over a thousand up into the Renaissance. So Wow. Yeah. Studied a pretty big an ancient time frame there. <laughs> The Divine Comedy came out, well, the first book around the year 1300. So, so that's, that's a good 700 years ago. Um,
0: well, for Lewis, it would have been closer to five. Well, what? No, no you're thinking
1: George MacDonald.
0: Whatever. Close enough.
1: <laughs> Although George MacDonald was still alive into 1900. So there's drawing more on ancient mythology. It feels like modern fantasy in general, especially Christian fantasy, is less moored in ancient tradition as... Uh, Fantasy initially was some of that is maybe just the evolution of the genre There's a lot of taking from the lord of the rings now, which you know great series, but let's face it
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's not even a hundred years old. Yeah, it's kind of funny because I know a lot of people tend to think that You know lewis and tolkien lived all this long long time ago (laughs) and it's like dude they were alive Less than a hundred years ago Mm -hmm. Like come on So I actually have a question for you to answer here, Carlissa. All right. And I can make a stab at it if you want me to. As a writer, are you consciously aware of Christian norm of, well, norms in Christian fantasy? And if so, do you really care about them? Do you lean into them at times? Do you avoid them? Does the existence of Christian norms really affect your writing at all and what you put down or what you don't put down?
1: Huh, that's a good question. I'm aware of norms. I wouldn't say I'm usually, I'm not usually going out of my way to try to defy norms. But at the same time, there are some norms in general that I'm not big on. Like Tales of the Diversity has no true humanoid characters very much on purpose. I think we're obsessed with always having humanoid type creatures in fantasy yeah and i don't think sci-fi yeah yeah and i don't think that's necessary i think people can connect with creatures that are physically very different from us
0: well and that's one thing that i know i've always argued with my brother well one of my brothers about is because he always would yell at me you know sonic the hedgehog and the characters in that universe are unrelatable and i'm like I'm specifically talking about the IDW comics. And my counter was, hold on, how are they not relatable? And his answer tended to come back to the point of, well, he's not human. The people in Sonic the Hedgehog's world are not human. So that, for whatever reason, inherently makes them unrelatable. But- Which is
1: kind of sad. <laughs> I think it's a sign of good sense of imagination and empathy when you're able to connect with characters that are not human
0: in my mind it brings up the broader question of what does it mean to be human if we just define it as we have to have these specific physical traits and whatever mm. xyz
1: that was something i think it was on the thinking out loud podcast i know there are a lot of podcasts called that one called that i mean the one with cameron mcallister and why am i blank nathan rittenhouse as they mentioned Classic animal stories where you know you have animals as the protagonists. They're not actually designed to teach you exactly more about being an animal, they are actually designed to draw out certain themes about what it means to be human. It's kind of like why fantasy itself exists. You take the world as is and you Put that aside and throw people off with, okay, we're going into another world where this has changed and this has changed and this has changed. But by doing that, you can draw attention to something that is in the real world, like what does it mean for good and evil to be at odds with each other? What does it mean to face death? What does it mean to, you know, in Lilith, what does it mean to become a Christian in a form of dying to yourself and to your natural instincts? That is, you asked me as a writer. Yeah. That is, I feel like uh, that's something that I have a plan for in the future. If I do often try to tone down the nerdiness in what I write and stuff to make sure it's still very approachable, there's, okay. there's a bit of a goal in that. I want to experiment with some with some short stories where I'm not making as much of a point of toning down the nerdiness. Kind of like that one story about
0: the, uh, what's her name? Chrysalis Hatcher or whatever. Like that one?
1: Oh, I didn't mean that. But yeah, that's a fun one.
0: Well, that one's pretty nerdy. You go. But I mean,
1: like trying to write um, allegory or really get into ancient apocalyptic genre and play around with a lot of metaphors and symbolic stuff. That's a goal. Well, that for someday.
0: Oh, what was it? What what was the C.S. Lewis story that I started reading that I couldn't make?
1: Yeah, you had trouble with The Great Divorce.
0: Well, and that one I think would qualify as being super nerdy. Even though,
1: yes, it is for whatever
0: reason, we've let you know, evangelicals have latched onto it as this great piece of work. But I have a strong suspicion, unless they someone tells them what's going on, it I doubt most of them even know half of what's going on in there. That's possible because, yeah, Lewis is making countless comments about, um, it is Dante's Inferno, it is basically a retelling, and um, well. Then you mentioned the fact that sort of his spiritual mentor of sorts is the ghost of George McDonald mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And it's not one of those things where it's like, oh, that's nice to know. I could have lived without that knowledge. If you don't know that knowledge, you've quite literally missed out on about half the story, it seems like. It's like, oh dear.
1: Yeah, because he doesn't, apparently, I didn't even notice this when I was reading it. He doesn't even say it's George McDonald.
0: Yeah, no. I had no clue. Like, oh, I know I annoying.
1: I knew it was George McDonald. But I had read stuff about The Great Divorce beforehand and I have a basic understanding of the Divine Comedy, which The Great Divorce is basically something of a retelling of The Divine Comedy.
0: So basically you're saying that as a writer, Christian fantasy norms, you only really pay attention to that in as much as you try to make your stories approachable and relatable and tone down the nerdiness. Did you take out like a lot of sailing terms and stuff like that for tales of the diversity or something
1: no i mean i meant more literary nerdiness than anything else
0: oh like deep allegory symbolism that sort of thing
1: or i guess avoiding too much stylistic stuff or oh how would i put it like there's an element of nerdiness but i don't i I do try to make sure it's i don't know (laughs) (laughs) i'm not sure how to explain (laughs)
0: Well, I'm sure the audience will find your explanation fascinating, (laughs) even though they didn't understand a word of what you said. Do you want me to give a shot at it?
1: Sure. Do you think about Christian fantasy norms when you're writing?
0: I didn't used to, but now that I'm aware of them, I kind of want to avoid them as much as possible, in part because for myself, I want what I write. At the end of the day, I want it to be something that I can be at least somewhat proud of and for myself it wouldn't take much for me to write whether a novel or a short story where i could literally just rip off every stereotype in the book
1: okay that would actually be difficult for me well that's not
0: (laughs) difficult for me because i'm a mimic if I'm around something long enough, I can start mimicking it. Whether it's an accent, whether it's a writing style, a way of speaking or whatever. You put me around something long enough and I can start mimicking it. My problem is is that I can never go beyond mimicking and actually make it my own. So that's where for myself, I at the very least am trying to be aware of what I'm aware of so that way I'm not unconsciously just mimicking everything that I see or hear. With what I'm writing currently, what I've noticed that's made it worthwhile for me to actually care about it going forward, even though I've been working on it for the better part of 10 years, is the fact that the parts that I most care about, not the parts that inherently are reflected in norms or what people tend to like, If those parts resonate with me, then it's worthwhile going on with. Because, frankly, I don't know who's ever going to read what I write. So, if nothing else, I want what I write to be something that means something to me, if no one else. A little (laughs) little self-centered, I know. And probably not the mentality of people who crank out, you know, stories left and right to Mm -hmm. feed the masses.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you're an author for making a living. You probably can't do that. You have to have a different attitude versus those of us who write because we like writing. It's
0: well, fun. <laughs> well, it's not just that we write because we like writing, but it's we want what we write to have some sort of significance to us, if nothing else. Whether it's um, like in your case with the uh, writing Black Miss, you were experimenting with a different style. Of story it meant something to you in that form uh with dwelling in darkness another one of your novels that was you really not delving super deep but your way of playing around with what was it madagascar mythology
1: some uh malagasy stuff and then also creatures that live in dark habitats which i feel like was good experimentation for pre davy jones aquarium where i feel like i really hit on it better in exploring animals that live in dark habitats
0: well you didn't go all in on them because that's not stuff that most people are familiar with so with davy jones aquarium what i've noticed is that you're a little more restrained in how you describe everything you don't just kind of dump everything on yeah, the it's reader more, at once whereas it's more about
1: feeling and sensing and getting to know the world
0: whereas yeah in dwelling in the darkness you kind of have just dumped a bunch of information on people at once which if you're into animals and that sort of area of the world then it's like oh wow this is fascinating or hey i recognize what she's doing here whereas i'm guessing the average person was kind of like are these people like high on drugs or something
1: one of my friends referred to dwelling in darkness as too nerdy for him it's like okay that's probably fair what a sissy (laughs) (laughs) i think yeah to some degree i'm still learning how to balance being able to experiment and more nerdiness and that'd make it approachable
0: well i think the struggle for you and to a lesser extent for me is more about how to make it approachable while still making it ours you know we're not going too far over and making it approachable to the point where it loses the parts of it that we really like that means a lot to us
1: Mm -hmm. so anyway for the opening question what do we do about Christian fantasy norms? I would say we get more in touch with ancient conversations and talking about what it means to be human. I think that's something that we don't write about very much as Christians that the world, our culture actually really needs right now. It's difficult for people to have a solid answer on what does it mean to be human? What are humans for is what Cameron McAllister and Nathan Rittenhouse bring up multiple times as a question that our society can't decide on i
0: found there's a lot of stuff that well not even ancient not so ancient cultures you know we're talking like you know the whether the medieval church or whatever that they figured out about you know humanity and the purpose of humanity how to understand the bible and stuff like that and it's stuff that we've lost over time and we tend to buy into this assumption that there's just us and then the future the past means very little and i think that's part of the reason why it seems like christian fantasy is now taking a backseat to christian sci-fi even though most of that sci-fi seems to be absurdly focused on the end of the world very annoying i haven't
1: read a lot of christian sci-fi i
0: made the mistake of looking up a lot of I looked up su- like
1: summaries and stuff. I, I looked up a lot, sum- a lot.
0: I looked up a lot of summaries trying to figure out what Christian sci-fi is about, and it, in part because it seems like a lot of Christians seem to have the mentality of the world: the world's not going to keep spinning that much longer before Jesus comes back. It's like well, the only sci-fi you can tell involves the end of the world, mm. and I think. If nothing else, looking to the deep past for just the imagination and different perspectives, even on how to see things. Like, one thing I've come to value about your writing, Carlissa, is the fact that you have a very deep appreciation for ancient cultures and mentalities and mindsets. So, you're more willing to explore that and to learn how people saw different, you know, issues of their day or whatever. And you also have a great appreciation for other cultures cuz you've been to 20 plus countries in the world and one reason
1: Has it been there? I don't think so. You've been Not to quite.
0: You've been to a lot. You've been around 20. Yeah. Whatever. But you've been to all those countries and unlike with most people you don't tend to struggle so much with the culture shift. In fact, that's something you anticipate and embrace wholeheartedly.
1: That's a fun part of going.
0: Well, I know for <laughs> some people that's part of the reason why they don't go to x countries or only go to resorts in certain countries because they i know for some people they can't stand the going to a non-westernized part of the world
1: yeah it can be hard for some people anyway
0: so that is about it for this one thank you all for listening please if you are listening to this on apple Podcasts, please subscribe to the Bookbat podcast and leave a rating it will help other people find our podcast unless you don't want people to find us you know <laughs> There's that. Uh, You can follow us on book-bat.com. You can find our podcast on there as well as the occasional blog post. And you can also follow Carlissa on Facebook under
1: book-bat. Okay.
0: It's book-bat. Just making sure. Where, yeah, in addition to the occasional writing updates and being notified of the podcast and so on and so forth, you will also get to see a lot of designs that Carlissa works on.
1: So, yeah. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Fun stuff like that. Bye.
1: Bye.